0: Let me start with thanks. Thanks to the people and institutions who have invited me to come to London for this academic year. It's a great honor and a great pleasure for me to teach at the London School of Economics uh, and its Department of International History. The German Historical Institutes provides the perfect environment for my research project and I thank my colleagues and all the staff for adopting me as a temporary member uh, during my stay. All this is only possible thanks to the financial support of the Gerda Henkel Stiftung that is funding this professorship at the crossroads of German and British contemporary history. I hope I will meet the expectations of scholarly quality and intellectual proficiency you have in mind when funding this marvellous chair. In my talk, I will give some insights into my current research project that I have brought to London and that I hope will profit largely from my stay here. So, in the following, I hope, 45 minutes, I present to you results and reflections from a work in progress. And from the very start, I must apologize for loose ends and unresolved problems. It's a piece of comparative social history about the working classes in West Germany, France, and Britain in times of deindustrialization. But it's not the notion of deindustrialization that I used in the title of my talk, and perhaps it's worthwhile explaining, it's worthwhile explaining why. Deindustrialization often appears when a name must be given to a trend and a whole period when jobs in manufacturing industries were shrinking and whole branches of the industries were disappearing. It continued for more than four decades in Western Europe and it is still going on. It started in the second half of the 1970s when the long boom came to an end. After 1945, manufacturing, mining, and construction industries had been constantly growing, attracting the highest numbers, both relatively and absolutely, of the national workforce. (coughs) Both the so-called old and a lot of new industries were profiting from this boom. This is even true for Britain, whose balance sheet of growth was much less glorious than that of West Germany or France, during the first three decades after World War War II. The late 70s and the 80s mark a kind of watershed. Job in manufacturing, mining, or construction starting to shrink, and whole branches coming into crisis. In the British perspective, deindustrialization is the key word for critical analysis. It often combines a nostalgic look at the good old times of industrial Britain and the short-lived rise of the British working classes from poverty to affluence with a critical inquiry into the growing social inequality in this country since the 1980s. This kind of interpretation is shared by many German scholars, although some of its relevance when one looks at the still high level of output and manufacturing uh, is not (coughs) so clear. Therefore, from a German perspective, deindustrialization is a relative term. Restructuring and renewal are other notions that should be introduced into the debate. The end of old industry like mining, shipbuilding or textiles was only one aspect of a broader process of transformation of manufacturing in times of changing markets. It is important to keep in mind that deindustrialization in Western Europe and elsewhere is not the uniform outcome of an evolutionary trend towards a new economy based essentially on service industry with the financial sector at its core and top. Different paths were leading to different forms of mixed economies, combining the manufacturing and the distribution of goods, services, and knowledge. The differences loom large throughout Europe and Britain and Germany are good examples to illustrate this, as we will see. Therefore, deindustrialization was just one outcome of economic transformations that took place on a global level. Since the 1970s, the internationalization of markets, product, production chains and the development of a common European market have given rise to fundamentally shifts in the international division of manufacturing. In the title of my talk, I have used the conventional but ambivalent notion of globalization to cover these trends that changed the world of business and of work. To cut a very complex and long story short, I would just like to mention four trends. The spread of new digital technologies of information and communication, the transfer of production sites to new places, mainly in Asia, but also in Latin America or Africa, new forms of organizing work at the factory level and new models of management. All this changed the profile of industrial work. The notion post-Fordism, coined by contemporary economists and sociologists, tried to bring together the different dimensions of these changes. As one single capitalist production regime has never existed, the notion of post-Fordism has been nothing but an umbrella term for a whole set of very different regimes of industrial production that were taking shape from the nineteen hundred seventies and eighties on and this worldwide. To speak of globalization allows you to place the transformations in Western Europe in their international contexts. The redistribution of market shares in manufacturing was part of a broader process of internationalization of production chains and of a further push in technological innovation. We may imagine the 1980s and 1990s as a period of experimentation when new clusters and patterns of industrial production were created worldwide. Two very contradictory visions seem to exist about the effects these transformations had on the life cycles of the billions of industrial workers worldwide during the last four or three decades. One line of interpretation may be best subsumed under the heading of precarity or for those stepping further in their critical inquiry informalization. Despite a trend towards still growing diversity in production regimes both on the different levels, many of those studying the sociology of work describe and generally criticize a trend towards deregulation of how, by whom, and at what price work in factories is performed. The acceleration of the production cycles seems to cooperate like to operate like low tide in the Thames when all kinds of social regulations, moral restraints, or habitual patterns that organize works in society are drawing back. As far as the worlds of manufacturing, mining and construction industries are concerned, experts are critically discussing trends towards corroding the status of the industrial workforce and changing the patterns of workers' lives, I would put at least three of these at the top of my list. First, a trend towards more flexible work uh, flexi- excuse me—towards flexible work contracts that allow the employers to engage their workforce more in accordance with the ups and downs of demand. This is an old and ever young dream of managers and shareholders to cut costs and save capital in times of slump. Secondly, a trend towards reducing the social costs of work like employers' contributions to social insurance systems or housing and other social investments that are not in their own discretionary power. Thirdly, a trend towards squeezing high wages via outsourcing or global production chains. This kind of interpretation is criticized by those who defend the upward dynamics of globalization on the working conditions of industrial workers. Mainly economists underline the long-term trends leading towards higher skills and higher wages in manufacturing worldwide. From very different starting points and levels of socioeconomic affluence, this culminates in trends towards the stabilization of working lives. In this liberal view, rising opportunities in labor markets and individual options for higher qualifications are driving forces, transforming market flexibility into life stability. But there's another element. In many societies, flexibility and insecurity as overall patterns of working lives are refuted for moral or political reasons. This kind of social resilience has resulted in legal or moral limits to dismissals, in preferences for stability of personnel and clear seniority rules, but also in political consensus on welfare regulations protecting older workers, the unemployed, or families from the risk of the new globalized economy. All this functions like buffers against the potholes of the labor markets and is of vital concern for our topic. Think about the effects pension schemes, unemployment benefits, or the wage hierarchies of skill and seniority established by collective bargaining have on the life course of workers. Central to this is the state of welfare regulations and legal regulations of labor established in the different countries. The somewhat somewhat official, but awkward term for this is flexicurity, used by the international organizations interested in a more global realization of these trends. What does this all mean for the life cycles of industrial workers in Western Europe? A comparative view may allow us to better understand the differences and similarities in these transformations. I'll be concentrating on the following, on the relationships between work and life cycle. This implies that other important aspects like family and household structures or the national welfare regimes are not discussed in detail. So I do not pretend to be giving a comprehensive view of the changing life cycle patterns among industrial workers or more broadly what we may call the working classes linked to these kinds of jobs. But I will be exploring the relationships between life cycles or work biographies and such things as levels of unemployment and job insecurity, the loss or gain of working skills, wages, age and gender. I will start my inquiry by looking at workers' biographies in West Germany. We need a starting point to describe transformations. That is, a simp- that is its- in itself a problem. I resolve it in the classic manner by presenting you an overtly simplified picture of the relationship between life cycle and industrial work in West Germany around <coughs> 1970. And I will do so by selecting just one group of employees, the largest one, that of blue collar workers, leaving aside technicians, engineers and managers. These years were the moment when blue collar workers, who were predominantly male all over Western Europe, about seventy percent in construction, mining and manufacturing industries, could look back could, uh, could look back on working lives that were stable. The majority of them experienced upward mobility in their firms or jobs and all profited from the rise in material comfort and consumerism. In the 1960s and 70s, for the first time in West German society, their life cycle was fundamentally similar to that of white collar workers in private or public services. Most of them had left school at the age of 14, but a growing number of them had got a vocational training and started their working lives as skilled workers now at the age of 17 or 18. Social welfare protected them in case of illness, invalidity and the pension system opened up to them a realistic chance of a comfortable retirement after the age of 65, as life expectancy had passed the age of 70 for men and for 75 for women. But alongside this kind of what we may call standard life pattern of at least, uh, existed at least two very different models. The first one was rather old, but changed character under the sign of affluence and consumerism. Female blue-collar workers who were the minority, had quite different work experiences and life uh, expectancies from those of their male colleagues, brothers or husbands. In 1970, many of them started factory life without any qualification and vocational training as unskilled workers, and they often quit the factory as soon as possible, as it is to say after marriage or the birth of their first child. Some of them returned 10 or 15 years later, often as on a part-time basis and again as unskilled workers. So there was no well-defined moment of retirement, but women could expect to profit from the pensions of their husbands and survive them by at least five years. There was a third group of blue-collar workers in 1970 whose life cycle pattern was also different the migrant worker recruited massively during the 60s and 70s all over Western Europe. They were, at this time, predominantly male, relatively young and often unskilled. Their proportion of the industrial workforce was still growing, up to 15 and 20 percent and even higher in some branches. Some of them had taken the first steps into working life in their home countries, but unemployment and low wages had interrupted their careers. The best way to describe the very different life cycles resulting from this kind of labor migration is to call them suspended. A large majority of them accumulating savings and living a provisional life in order to return home and continue a working life there. The returning rates were high, but the number of those starting to bring their families to Germany was was continually growing. Migrant workers who stayed longer in West Germany often worked continuously in one factory, starting to share a common working experience with their German colleagues and following a work biography comparable to that described as the first variant. As unskilled workers, they profited particularly from the booming business cycle in the manufacturing industries, producing the new products of mass consumption from cars to TVs and washing machines on a large scale. How were these different (coughs) life cycles changed by the transformations from the mid-70s? I have used information gathered by the socio -Socio panel, a representative panel study of more than 12,000 German households since 1984, to take a closer look at the real life cycles of manual workers. This is possible because, year by year, the same households were interviewed so that more information about their work situation over a span of more than 20 years is available. These data allow us to combine a more detailed look into the social fabric of work biographies with statistical evidence that enables us to measure the frequency of such biographical patterns. If one adds the information about the past collected at the time of the first interview, single biographies run from the start of the working life to retirement, covering up to 40 years or more of working life. I collected statistical information on more than 3,000 people but in the following, I'm focused on about 630 work biographies that procure very detailed information over longer times. How have those who acquired a status of relative stability and affluence at the end of the 1970s fared in the new era, characterized by the return of mass employment, general reduction of jobs in industry, and the return of the business <coughs> cycle with its regular ups and downs? Let's first have a look at those entering this period 10 years or more after they had started working. Born between 1930 and 1945, these workers were in the middle of their working lives when the economic turmoil hit the enterprises. The first thing that strikes when one is exploring these data is the fact that most of them continued to work in manufacturing. A lot of them even continued their careers in the firms that employed them in 1975. The work biography of a a Joiner, born in 1939 and living near the city of Bremen, is easy to sum up. In the late 1950s, after his apprenticeship, he started working as a skilled worker. From 1965, he was working in the same factory in the motor car industry, and during the 80s and early 90s, he operated as a foreman or a leader of a work team. In 1996, at the age of 57, he was dismissed, probably as part of a planned agreement, and was then unemployed for 20 months before getting his pre-retirement. His real wages had been rising during the 80s, but after his 50th birthday, his monthly pay started to go down, about 70%. Let us look at a second biography, chosen from the group of unskilled workers. Am is a Turkish metal worker living in Dortmund and had been working in the same factory uh, in mechanical engineering since 1967 as an unskilled worker operating various tool machines. He was dismissed in 1990 at the age of 49. A long period of unemployment began, and M was eventually unemployed for more than 85 months, that is full seven years, before getting his pre-retirement in 1997 at the age of 56. This end of his working life coincided with a dramatic break in his personal life. His marriage broke up at the same time, and he got divorced divorced in 1990, living alone from then on. In economic terms, his situation changed drastically. He lost up to 60% of his earlier monthly income. This may be an extreme case, but it's, a part, it's part of a larger pattern of work biographies. Technological change and international competition led to a massive reduction in jobs for unskilled workers. Among the more than 230 workers in West Germany, born between 1946 and 1965, whose careers are reported for more than 15 <coughs> years in the panel data, this group represents about 9%, but migration migrant workers were particularly hit by these changes. In this group, and I made a study on the Turkish group in it, one in four workers ended his working life before the age of 60, some of them very early in their 50s. Older workers in general were regarded as unfit for the introduction of new technologies and ran greater risk of redundancy than their younger colleagues. But for German workers, this moment often came at the age of 57 or 58 or later. It is open to closer study what the main reasons for this difference between migrant and German workers were. In most cases, redundancy at this age meant the end of a working life that had started at the age of 15. Early retirement was lived as an ambiguous change. It prevented further deteriorate, deteriorate, excuse me, deterioration in health, opened new options in private life, but it is but it cut people off from the social networks and sociability centered around the workplace. M, like many others whose file I have read, regularly insisted on his good relations with his colleagues. We should keep in mind that M was one of those whose life cycle in 1970 may be described as being suspended, meaning that decisions about the future were postponed, be it marriage, transfer of the family, or search for a decent home. But during the 80s and early 90s, when this first generation of mainly Turkish blue collar workers had more or less involuntarily opted for a permanent stay in West Germany, they faced a dramatic turn in their life cycle, cutting them off from their new social surroundings. This could even result in sudden exclusion from social life and contacts. This is a social fact rarely discussed seriously in debates about immigration, generational conflicts, and integration during the last three decades in Germany. So the picture is a mixed one, but continuity prevailed up to the age of 50. Obviously, both the introduction of new technologies and new production regimes on the one side and the closure of old factories in downsizing so-called old industry produced the same effect. Both led to a general farewell to the older, old-style blue-collar worker, what is called in Germany the so-called Malocher. It resulted in a dramatic rejuvenation of the remaining workforce more open to and better prepared for the new (coughs) high-quality production regimes and their rising demands on flexibility, but also communication and technical knowledge. This intergenerational change has particularly, is particularly dramatic in branches and factories where the manpower was drastically reduced over short periods of time, as it was the case, for example, in the steel industries or to some extent in the car production. French, British and German oral sources tell us a lot about the conflicts resulting from the social dramas of what is called social aging or generational shift. What about the younger workers, those who entered the job markets about 1975? Their life stories read a little differently. The range of varieties seem to become larger and some of them may suggest a general trend back towards greater precarity. Among these age groups of workers, job changes implying a change of branch or craft were more frequent than among the older age cohorts, and these changes more often included periods of unemployment. But closer study of their work biographies supports another interpretation. A more twisted but largely successful path into a stable job in a medium-sized or larger enterprise seems the more common feature for a majority of young skilled workers born between 1965 <coughs> and 75, whose careers I have reconstructed. They profited from the trust German managers, engineers and masters had in the dual system of vocational training. It offered them the chance to recruit young workers at a very early stage and to integrate them into their own strategies of technological innovation and adaptation. The upward mobility that had been characteristic of the boom years did not end in 1975 or 1980 but continued to be the realistic horizon for younger skilled workers who often replaced the older ones. This point marks one central difference between the West German and the British situation. I will come back to that some minutes later. Let's turn to our case. B was born in 1958, lived in Duisburg, and started his working life after nine years of schooling and three years of apprenticeship as an electrician or expert in industrial electronics. He was one of those who, after their apprenticeship, were taken on by their firms as skilled workers. From then on, he continued his career in the same enterprise, probably the Thyssen steel plant, 15 minutes away from his home. In 1993, he became head of a work group, having taken over having taken a so-called master course from 1990 to 1993. In 1996 he officially changed status, moving upward from worker to employee and taking on supervisory functions. Supervisory functions. His salary was constantly rising and in 2002, at the age of 45, he earned three and a half times as much as in 1900 in the interviews for the socio Panel, he was regularly asked about his job satisfaction. In 1985, and again in 1990 and 92, during his master course, it was very high, but after that fell to a miserably three points out of ten. The risk of a blocked career frustrated the young man till 1996 when he got his internal promotion. Internal promotion continued to be an important means of upward mobility and a professional career among industrial workers. All the more so as external options for change were becoming rarer for workers and they often needed moves to other regions where job offers in their crafts were still high. Nevertheless, Changes also occurred in this zone of stability. Young men entered the industrial workplace a little later because schooling became now, uh, with a tenth or eleventh year longer, and before entering an apprenticeship. And retirement continued to start earlier, but it's too early to say a definite word about this. Most of these workers are still in their jobs. The, the next example is a worker born in 1969 near Göttingen. He left school after 10 years with a real Schule diploma, did an apprenticeship in industrial painting and started working in his trade at the age of 20 in 1989. But he soon quit his job and became unemployed before restarting his working career as an operator in a glass producing factory. Continuity at the workplace and in family life, he married in 1991 at the age of 22, seemed to be two sides of the same coin. And in 1996, he became a homeowner after a steady rise in his monthly wage during the first 10 years of work. At the age of 37 in 2006, D was promoted to foreman. But, and this indicates another change in the life courses of industrial workers during the late 20th century. Wages no longer continued to grow, and during the next 10 years, these monthly wages <laughs> oscillated heavily between 1,700 1, and 2,300 euros, depending on his firm's business cycle. Let me contrast this biography with that of a young man born in 1966 and living in Wuppertal, later in Dusseldorf. He had a very unsteady working life till the age of 29 when he started a new job as a cart driver in a steel factory, later becoming an operator in the melting sector of the same factory. Before he finally found his job, F had spent 12 years in search of a good job for an unskilled young male like him. He was dismissed four times, returning more or less regularly to periods of unemployment. Here again, the start of a more stable working life and a personal relationship went together. In 2001, we got the the latest news from this biography. At the age of 35, F is still in the same job and in the same relationship. This biography describes another situation that had developed since 1975. The emergency of a world of precarity and instability, mainly affecting unskilled workers, particularly those who migrated to Germany during or after the school years. If we compare their biographies to those of their older cousins or fathers who had arrived in 1965 or 1970, We can see the difference. Now the changing production regimes made it much more difficult for them to find a stable position because jobs for unskilled workers were dramatically shrinking in manufacturing and now much more time and often social capital was needed to enter the high wage zone of industrial production. Often handicrafts like motor repairs or the construction industry were branches that offered first jobs to those young men. Some of these careers ended in stability and regularly rising incomes. But we also see that the jobs they carried out were more exposed to the business cycle and they had to be flexible. In this case, we should not forget that there was a rather long period of instability that was existing between the end of school and the stable years of continuous industrial work ranging from the age of 15 to that of 30. It is quite interesting to see that this pattern of a prolonged youth period remote from regularly waged work is one that developed at the same time among students particularly among those seeking access to professional jobs in media, culture, and social services. What about women? A look at the working lives of women in manufacturing industries since the 1970s doesn't offer much that is new. Most of them stayed four, five, or six years, often as unskilled workers in manufacturing industries. Their working lives were interrupted by marriage, birth, or dismissal. In terms of biography instead of work biographies biographies, it would be better to speak of social or household biographies because in the sense that part-time work done by wives was dependent on the rhythms of their household or their families, the age of their children or their husband's job situation and much less on something that we could compare to an individualized work cycle. This life cycle pattern was equally common among Turkish, Italian, or West German women from the working classes. We should add that new female work cycles took shape, but this was mainly in the so-called service industries, in education, or the health sector. Whereas in industry, the number of female skilled workers remained very limited. There's only one group whose parallel biographies suggest that some kind of pattern exists women workers re-entering their learned or other trades after divorce or being widowed and starting a kind of a second career. It is perhaps no coincidence that a substantial number of Turkish women rejoined this path and that is to left that they had left for marriage and childcare. G, born again in 1966 of Turkish origins, entered the labor market at the age of 20 after (coughs) nine years of school and three years of apprenticeship. She started in small retail shops on a full and then part-time basis before getting married and pregnant at the age of 23. Her working life in manufacturing restarted in 1999 after her divorce and moved to Augsburg in Bavaria with her child. At the age of 33, she entered a new job as an unskilled worker in electric engineering that allowed her, allowed her to make a modest living for herself and her child. We get good news from her in 2007. At the age of 41, she had enough resources to become a homeowner. It is time to, com- uh, to come to compare these individual and collective biographies with findings from other West European countries. In my project I'm working on France and Britain, but now I will just have a look at British experiences. Let us begin with a very elementary but necessary observation. In the two decades between 1972 and 1992, Britain lost 2.3 million jobs in manufacturing, mining and construction industries. About 24% of all jobs in these three sectors were lost per decade, 23%. Between 1992 and 2002, this part of the national economy lost another 544,000 employees. But the shrinkage was relatively smaller, amounting to 30% in this decade. This means that the risk of losing your job during the two de- decades in that part of the British economy was about, <laughs> was about 80% higher than in the West German case, where the number of industrial imp- employees shrank also about 30% per decade, decade from 1972 to 2002. Therefore, types of working biographies strongly affected by insecurity or precarity we have found evidence of in our German panel data should be found much more often in Britain. In this respect, work biographies from the old industrial centers in the northern and western regions of Britain show more similarities with the biographies of East German industrial workers after 1990, when a large proportion of ex-GDR factories were simply shut down and manufacturing disappeared in many regions of Eastern Germany. In Britain, social data are somewhat different. The British Household Panel Survey did not, did not start until 1991, so a direct comparison is not possible. The dramatic transformation of the Thatcher years cannot be reconstructed by the kind of biogra- biographical data I have represented to you. But both statistical and biographical information exists that help to fill the gap. The much larger <coughs> and geographically very condensed loss of industrial jobs between 1979 and 2000 meant that the trend towards early retirement by industrial workers was even stronger than in West Germany. A regional study of, in the mining er, uh, areas of Yorkshire came to the conclusion that in the mid-90s about 40% of former miners under 65 were unemployed, ill or in some kind of pre-retirement scheme. An ex miner and strike activist in 1984-85 declared in an interview, I quote, Maggie Thatcher closed the pits right enough, but I think she saved my life. I was 21 when I finished and I... and I would have had another 15 years underground if they had stayed open. But what would I have been like with another 15 years underground? The situation of British miners was a particular one, but in my view, view, this statement best illustrates the ambiguities of this social aging of an entire age cohort of manual workers from the different branches of manufacturing, from manufacturing to construction. Often those born before 1940 did not enter the new worlds of digitalized workplaces or machinery but were turned into early pensioners whose health was unstable or bad enough to make them veterans who escaped in time from their strenuous or unhealthy workplaces. But they lost the social world of solidarity and comradeship that had given sense to their individual life cycle. In the case of Britain, their working lives have become an integral part of the collective memory of a kind of foreign industrial country that has been lost since the 1980s. Somewhat different and more ambiguous are the working lives of those who entered the cycle of industrialization in Britain at the age of 40, 35, or even younger. They all had to adapt to the shrinking chances of finding work in the industrial branches or in the kind of craft or trade they had learned. Statistics drawn from the job panel survey established since 1975 in Britain may help to shed some light on their realities. They show that from 1985 to 1999, the frequency of long-term job tenure or even of lifetime jobs remained overall high in manufacturing for the age groups between 26 to 50. Here we see similarities with the German work biographies we looked at before. British workers who found jobs in the remaining manufacturing industries or in those newly newly established sectors like electronics and electrical engineering or in new plants of the car industry may have experienced life cycles similar similar to those West German counterparts. But British social reality was characterized more by a widening gap between those still working in the manufacturing sector, often for many years, and the growing number of those entering a new, but much more unstable world of jobs in the service industries. The number of those who ran the risk of losing their wage levels after dismissal and the living through longer periods of unemployment was higher and the type of working biography we have just seen in the case of unskilled and migrant workers may have been familiar to a large part of the British industrial workforce during the 80s and 90s. At least statistical evidence show, show us that low wages were more common in British than in German manufacturing and the risk of dismissal was generally higher. But similarities are evident when it comes to the situation of working women. In both countries, even in times of deindustrialization, life cycles in manufacturing work remain strongly gendered. Continuity of employment and skilled work was assigned to men, and flexibility and low wages were for unskilled work to women. But these patriarchal patterns of labor division were eroding under the double impact of economic globalization and female emancipation, opening the life cycles of both men and women in work for remodeling. But this happened predominantly outside the world of industrial work. As in Germany, uh, in Britain, the proportion of full-time working women in manufacturing remained very small, many women working on a part-time basis. Often these wives or sisters from working class families were those who stabilized household incomes in the period of accelerated shift in local or regional economies towards service industries. The rise of the so-called all-work household rate, as it's called uh, statistically, to use the jargon, in Britain was remarkable, from 58% in 1977 to 66% in 2006. In the German case, we encountered the so-called May breadwinner model as a relatively new but attractive model in working-class households of the early 1970s. British working-class families were not far away from this, but more often, wives had to find part-time or temporary jobs to neutralize the lower wages in British factories. A sharp contrast can be seen when we consider the situation of young workers, those starting their working lives in manufacturing during the 1980s and 90s. At this point, we may discover the most striking difference between the West German and the British case. West German manufacturing industries developed their new regimes of diversified quality production, as it's called, during these decades of transformation relying more than before on the use of skilled workforce trained outside the general school system. This was quite rare in Britain. Flexibility and high quality, the two pivotal elements in the new international division of industrial production, were sought by employing a skilled workforce throughout the factories and reducing the number of unskilled workers. To give you an example, a study Comparing 39 German and British factories producing components for the motor car industry at the end of the 1990s shows us big differences in the skill levels of the respective staffs. In Britain, only three percent of the shop floor workers were skilled workers, whereas in German plants, 40 percent, 40, not 40 percent were in this category, and management, was assigning them more complex tasks than was the case with their British counterparts. Even among the higher ranks of the staff, the number of engineers and technicians was higher in the German factories than in the British ones. As a result, German wages were higher, and we may conclude the probability of stability and upward mobility for the so-called rank and file too. The background of these differences at the plant level is a more general one. Craft apprenticeship training systems operated in Germany at a scale at least 10 times greater per head of population than in Britain. Here it was exactly during this period of so-called post-fordism that the notion of craft or trade was losing much of its practical meaning for younger people entering the job market. We should not forget that even in British factories skill levels were rising but it was negotiated on a much more individual level than in the German case. An apprenticeship system was not regulated at a national level but only local niches and or pockets of older system survived in that period. In Germany from 1960 to 1990 about half, in West Germany excuse me, from 1960 to 1990, about half of young people, both sexes, doing an apprenticeship were acquiring their their vocational skills in manufacturing. The craft of a skilled worker was adapted to the new levels of knowledge and multiple skills, manufacturing under the new technological conditions required, whereas in Britain the divide between the world of professional jobs restricted to to those obtaining a degree in general education and all others was widening. In Germany, the intermediary level of work skill of the so-called Facharbeiter, the skilled worker, was coming closer and closer in status to that of a technician. And it was becoming more important both in the sense of strategic impact in production and of quantitative frequency in the workforce. Therefore, I'm tempted to translate the generic German notion of Beruf, central to the self-esteem and the social position of this group of manual workers in manufacturing, by the English term profession, and no longer as a trade, and surely not as what in English is meant by the generic term of skill. But that opens a more general debate on the shifting languages of knowledge and work these decades in both countries were uh, undergoing. In any case, first of all, it opened a future in manufacturing to a section of the male youth from the working classes and unemployment rates among them were significantly lower than in those European countries where such systems did not exist or faded away under the impact of (coughs) deindustrialization. In the 1970s, 80s and early 90s (coughs) empirical studies of the official Federal Office of Work used their own detailed data on the workforce employed in enterprises (coughs) which helps a better understanding of these contexts. Let us compare the situations in 1970 and 1992. 100 trained skilled workers, only a minority, were working in this category when asked in the moment of the inquiry. And this group shrank to about 30% in 1992. In the 80s and early 90s, a rising number of them were employed in jobs for unskilled workers, but a much larger and growing uh, minority, from 18 to 27%, added a further job qualification to their apprenticeship and were working as technicians, engineers or in the middle management. German manufacturing industries relied massively on the skilled workforce available when it entered this period of adaptation to new technological standards and new market situations. The system of apprenticeship that in Germany and some other European countries survived the Fordist period may be seen as one of the main single factors that that explains why stability of life life cycles was so strong and continued even for those age groups entering (coughs) the industrial labor markets in the 80s and 90s. (coughs) It's time to come to an end. In the light of these empirical findings and the comparison, we may better understand the links between collective work biographies and the changing patterns of manufacturing in Western Europe. In West Germany, what is called the diversified quality production regime that replaced the mass production of the boom era, offered a great variety of options for management, capital and trade unions to adapt, establish patterns of work, and enhance the career and life cycles of industrial workers to the new conditions of international division of industrial labor. Stability of unemployment was maintained but had a price. Workers' dependence on their firm and its business cycle increased dramatically. The other price for this kind of social contract was a considerable reduction in jobs and a radical rejuvenation of the working force. As we have seen, this drastically changed the lifestyle life cycle excuse me of older workers and created another group of unskilled workers whose working lives now return to patterns of precarity we know best from the proletarian biographies of earlier periods the british case offers us insights into the disruptive effects a radical economical reorientation on the national level away from manufacturing had during the 1980s and 90s. If my empirical findings are right, social aging via pre-retirement but also informal forms of long periods of unemployment or illness was the fate of much larger larger proportions of the working class and it was strongly intermingled with a widening generational gap resulting from the fact that all younger youth cohorts tended to turn their back on the old crafts and trades. Last but not least, the number of industrial workers, skilled or unskilled, who started a new life cycle as workers in the service industries was much higher than in the German case. Often it was more or less a kind of reinvention of a working life, for better or for worse. This represents another type of working biography we still have to explore. Let me end with a remark on one aspect that is crucially missing in my paper, the way these life causes were seen and lived by those engaged in them. The kind of sources I have used here does not permit deeper insights in this respect. In the British case, the voices of those who had to cope with and often had to pay the price for the effects of deindustrialization are much more present than the hidden and often calmer stories of German workers. In a comparative perspective, they show show us a lot of cultural and political differences but also a very strong attachment to the same values of industrial production and group solidarity based on a shared working experience. But that would be a topic for another talk.